Welcome to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, a place for healing and hope for couples impacted by betrayal resulting from infidelity and or sex addiction. Your hosts are Marnie Breaker and Dwayne Osterland, licensed marriage and family therapists, certified sex addiction therapists, and founders of respective treatment centers in Long Beach, Los Angeles, and San Diego, California. Marnie and Dwayne co-created Helping Couples Heal, a comprehensive program for couples recovering from betrayal trauma, including an in-person two-day workshop, an online aftercare program, and this podcast series is the first component of the program. Thank you for listening. Marnie and Dwayne are committed to helping you recover from the devastating impact of betrayal trauma and are honored to support you wherever you may be in your healing. If you've lost hope, you've come to the right place. Now, take a slow, deep breath, and let's begin with the Helping Couples Heal podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Helping Couples Heal podcast. This is Marnie Breaker, and I'm here with Dwayne Osterland. And today we have brought back a guest who was on our podcast a couple of months ago, Dr. Omar Minwala. And for those of you who um, listened to that podcast, when Dr. Minwala was with us, he shared um, a lot of really helpful information about his model, and, and he also shared with us a diagram that we have posted on our website. So if you um, if you are at home in your or at an office or a place where you have a computer and you'd like to actually look at the diagram as he's speaking today, that might be very helpful. So you can access that at the Helping Couples Heal website. And Dwayne, do you know specifically how they find it on the website? Yeah, I can go to the episode and there'll be a link to uh, download it, a button that they can push and they can just download the, the diagram. It's called the iceberg diagram. Right. Okay. So when we were doing that podcast, we could have gone forever. I remember it was really difficult to wrap up and there were so many important and key concepts that we talked about and um, we were not able to really focus on anyone in particular because of the amount of information we had and the limitations in time. And so we had thought it would be really helpful to have Dr. Manwala come back and kind of zero in on some really important information that we think um, will be helpful. So Dr. Manwala, if you would like to maybe just introduce yourself again for those people who might not know you and then jump in. Well, thanks for having me, both of you. And I'm really excited, actually, to be able to talk about some of this stuff. And uh, I think it's important information. So thanks for having me on here. Um, Last time, we talked about just this umbrella concept of compulsive, abusive, sexual, relational disorders. And I think the thing that I honed in on was that this is a two-part problem. Um, There's sexual behavior that's problematic. Uh, And then there's an integrity disorder and an abuse problem. Abuse problem meaning psychological, emotional, relational abuse and patterns of harm. And in the traditional treatment models, uh, whether it's uh, for compulsive sexual behavior or if someone's using a sex addiction model, Um, those models are usually focused on viewing the problem as a one-part problem, the out-of-control sexuality or the compulsive sexuality or the sexual behavior part. 
what my model proposed is, is that we really look at it as a two-part problem again. And that other part is the part that I'd like to focus on, the what we're calling the integrity abuse disorder part. And maybe one thing to start off the conversation is that, you know, we're not often talking about physical abuse. And in our society, if it's not bruises and physical abuse, then the word abuse becomes difficult to even apply when it's emotional or psychological or relational abuse. So when I use the word abuse, I'm not typically talking about physical violence. I'm usually talking about patterns, chronic patterns of psychological harm, emotional harm, and relational harm. And and Omar, I have a question right off the bat. What comes to mind is how do you handle or deal with the resistance or initial defensiveness that somebody listening might have right away in just hearing the word abuse? Um, I have found one thing that's really helpful is to make things clear and logical and go into teaching mode and break things down a little bit. So exactly what I just did now is what I might do in the beginning of a conversation uh, with a patient um, or a student or anyone I'm talking about these issues with, uh, which is just slowing down and naming, hey, there's more types of abuse out there than just physical harm. And there's more ways to harm a human being than just physically. And that the emotional body and our psyches and our relationships and our attachments can be wounded too. And we can have serious symptoms from those wounds. So just talking about that, expanding the definition of abuse beyond just physical violence and bruises and that kind of thing is part of helping somebody uh, understand what the term means. And so you do need to slow down and sometimes point those things out because those assumptions are strong. And it re you know before you can move forward with the discussion, everybody sort of needs to at least understand that there's more than physical harm that exists. Absolutely. So I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah, you're, I am, yeah. I'm curious, do you, so I, cause I know you do intensives where you'll have um, addicts come and they will be exposed to your model and I'm curious what kind of response you get, at least initially, from the men who come to your programs. I think earlier in my development, there was less sophistication in how I was bringing it up. I think I was more uncomfortable with the term myself, and so I think that comes across. And there was more arguments or resistance or intellectualizing and debating. Uh, what I've learned and what's worked for me is really creating an environment where the patient feels safe and respected first and foremost and really trusts that you are on their side, so to speak. And in, in that environment, if you slow down and break concepts down into digestible concepts that are easily understood and you make things logical and you build upon those, I've found that most of my patients are very apt and able to 
start metabolizing this information and make sense of it. And there's much less resistance now in my practice. Thank you. Um, so one thing I thought might be helpful is uh, now that we've kind of done that basic foundational discussion on physical abuse and that there are things such as psychological and emotional and relational abuse patterns. Let's maybe just name some of them because that sounds harsh for people when they hear that, you know, psychological, emotional, and relational abuse. And that needs to be, I think, more clearly defined and illustrated for people before they can easily understand why those terms might apply. So some of the common things that we see with these disorders and that will show up in our practices are, for example, the very common ones are chronic patterns of lying, lying by omission, a form of psychological manipulation, which is called gaslighting, which is intentionally manipulating your partner's reality. There's often patterns of denial and avoiding responsibility of the truth. There's often patterns of blaming the partner or the relationship. There's often various types of defensive reactions, uh, such as stonewalling or refusing to disclose information or providing partial disclosures that are framed as full disclosures or using threats or intimidation or anger to shut down a partner. Patterns of violating agreements or promises or boundaries deceptive management of one's spouse or family. And then there can be all sorts of individual type of patterns, like some partners experience chronic diminishment for years or years of sexual rejection or years of emotional erosion and withdrawal. There's partners who uh, may be wondering for years and feeling something in their gut that there's something wrong and blaming themselves or being confused as to why they feel that way. So there's a lot of different types of patterns that partners are often experiencing and sometimes for years. And uh, the list goes on because there's a lot of different and other things that I haven't mentioned. But I wanted to illustrate that and start talking about that just to bring that to life because otherwise, if those those things aren't explained, it's hard for people to really get on board with psychological, emotional, and relational abuse patterns. When you were talking about that, Omar, I was just about to to say that same thing, that as you start to name these things and make them concrete, it is much easier to recognize how damaging this kind of behavior is to a partner. If you've been with someone who has been doing this for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, this can be incredibly difficult. And when you use the word abuse, I mean, it makes sense hearing it from this perspective and from these specific, I guess, calling it out, the behavior out specifically makes it easier to understand it and use the label of abuse. And I would, I also wanted to say that when you were talking, I was thinking that pretty much all of the men that I work with, the addicts that I work with, own the sexual behavior and the betrayal piece pretty quickly. It is the abuse that you've described, that word abuse, and those psychological patterns of manipulation that I see a lot more um, difficulty with for my clients in terms of, of being willing to accept that. 
it's much harder for them to sit with the manipulation and the psychological abuse than it is for them to sit with the actual you know problematic sexual behavior yeah and i think both of you are um articulating something very real which is it needs to be spelled out you know you can't just throw these words at somebody <laughs> and not spell it out and nobody wants to own that they've been abusive and so that's a natural response is let me get some more information before i take on this label that i don't like so part of the work is slowing down and explaining chronic patterns of lying let's think about that let's talk about that how could that be emotionally harmful how could that be relationally harmful how could that be psychologically harmful and what if it's a pattern over time and what does that do to a person and how does that shape them how does that shape the relationship right so that spelling out is part of the teaching the slowing down making it logical because once you start talking like that um, most of my clients or patients really get that because you're really explaining it in a logical way in ways in, in language that most humans can understand because they too know how it might feel to be lied to. Right. Right. Um, one question I have, do you think that the person who is engaging in this abusive behavior is consciously aware of how damaging this behavior is, or are they in some kind of denial about it? Or, or maybe this is how the, I'm just thinking, maybe this is how they grew up. So it almost seems normal. I don't think most people understand at all the depth of damage of emotional, psychological, and re relational abuse. Partly because, like we just said, some people are walking around thinking the only type of abuse that exists is physical violence. So we're really far away from understanding right. the depth of harm of these patterns. Yeah. And that's why I thought it was so important for you to come back and speak about this because we see so much of this with sexual betrayal. And I think all too often the focus is exclusively on the sexual behavior and that this piece is so missed. And even when an addict or somebody who's been unfaithful um, changes the behavior and they abstain from all of that sexual behavior, there's still this huge wound that's occurred in the context of the the abuse. And if that's not addressed and validated and tended to, I still think that you're going to end up having a traumatized partner and, and likely a traumatized couple. Yes, and I think uh, one thing I wanted to add is, and to make this a little more clinical, you know, Dwayne, you said, when you read all those patterns and when you listen to all those patterns, you can really, it brings to life how difficult it is. And to take that one step further, when we look at the definition of complex trauma and the simple definition of complex trauma is patterns of harm over time with the lack of a viable escape route, right? And a lot of these right. patterns are sometimes covert and the victim doesn't even know that they're being gaslighted necessarily or that there's lies of omission. And so those chronic patterns of harm over time actually create symptoms and those symptoms are symptoms of complex trauma. So what happens to 
a relationship or a partner who's experiencing these patterns over time is she's being shaped and that shaping already has a name it's called complex trauma so these patterns of abuse cause complex trauma symptoms which is basically the slow shaping of a relationship and of the victim so that just puts it into clinical language that we already have you know those aren't recreated concepts those are concepts that we already have and i just wanted to connect this list that i read and the kind of patterns we're talking about those patterns are abuse patterns that cause complex trauma shaping in the victim and so that's the science of uh, this kind of harm right also as you're as you're talking about this it seems to me it can be so hard to look at this because you can really see the damage. I can see why this would be so uncomfortable to use this kind of language because it makes it very real. And that's why I have found you really need to gain the respect of your audience and really first create an environment where they feel safe and they know that you have their back. And then you can talk and teach a lot actually and a lot can be metabolized by them. That initial resistance and discomfort is being metabolized as well in the environment. So in a way you're saying, as a person who may have done this abusive behavior, you're also holding a compassionate, loving space for them to be able to see this as it is. Correct, without you know, running across the room and trying to attack me or throwing a chair out the window or fleeing the room and, you know. Right. Because this is hard. This is hard to look at. This is, this would be incredibly difficult and painful to have reflected back, you know, and a person who has engaged in their uh, addiction and gone about doing all of this stuff, maybe, as you said earlier, kind of on an unconscious level, to then make it all conscious and say, and be able to go, oh my gosh, these are the things I did. And you know, the last time you were here, Omar, there was something really interesting that you said that I wanted to bring back in today, which was that other clinicians that do not address the abuse piece and maybe avoid it for you know a number of reasons are not necessarily doing a service by sending the message that, that the client is not capable of looking at the abuse patterns and not capable of taking it in and being with it and naming it and tolerating it and then learning how to do it differently moving forward and, and helping to understand then the, the damage that has been done as, as, a, as a response to all of those behaviors, all of that abuse. And then that's how you can heal the relationship. But do you remember that when we talked about that, how, you know, you feel like, it's it's this the protecting of the addict it's the the not naming it that is really sh- it, 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 more shaming ironically well first of all it's colluding with the abuse if you're not naming it and helping someone with it and if you're avoiding it and being silent as a bystander we look at that as collusion and participation of it actually you know in that right. silence and the first few things i say to people is it, And you're right, Marnie, it's a patronizing view of a patient to assume that they can't handle it. Mm -hmm. And that's actually not factual because 
I've been just talking about my work and how able men are to at least intellectually start to take this in and metabolize and emotionally too. And, you know, the, some of the first things I say to patients when I'm trying to present this material is a couple things. One is I first start out by saying I'm really honored that they're here and just willing to hear me out. And I, I take that seriously. And I explain that I do believe that taking responsibility for how you may have harmed somebody, um, particularly somebody you love, but really anybody, is one of the most difficult, challenging things we can do or undertake as a human being. Absolutely. And I lay down those foundational energies in the room and really make sure that that may really make sure that that's solid um, before we start going into these topics and the teaching of it. So that kind of gives you an idea of how to create that space you were talking about, Dwayne. Yeah, definitely. I think that's so important. I mean, you, you've got all, all of these wounded people in different ways and their wounding has come out in different ways and to be there and help them all heal. I mean, that's the goal of all of this. And they're really thankful and express gratitude and they're really helped and they share that, that this is helpful and that they've needed this and that this makes a lot of sense. And now it makes sense why they've stopped the sexual behavior, but they haven't even tackled some of these patterns and right. why their partner might still be having wounds and trauma reactions that are unrelenting, even though there's sexual sobriety. So this invariably, and I would say 99%, every time I present this, there's gratitude, there's an expansion of consciousness, and it's very edifying and helpful. So you know, I've seen that over and over again. Um, it's undeniable the ability of my patients who are mostly men open up to this stuff and articulate how helpful it is and how useful it is and encouraged they are by it yeah i'm wondering if you've had this experience where you know you have you've shared this you've shared this information and this knowledge and like you said your clients are very very grateful for it it makes sense it resonates but then the therapist that they're working with or were working with prior to coming into working with you does not operate or even believe in this model. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that. Oh, that, I think that happens all the time. Uh, it's because what I'm talking about is something that most therapists have yet to discover, right? I think we've talked in previous podcasts and part of the work you guys are doing is focusing on the symptoms in the victims, right? That's what the trauma model is. That's what we're talking about when we talk about partner trauma, betrayal trauma. Part of the trauma is that complex shaping that we just talked about. And at some point you have to identify what is that complex shaping and who's doing it. And then you start naming the abuse and then you realize, oh, we have to name the abuse because it's part of this picture. So right now, though, most clinicians dealing with these issues see it as a sexual acting out problem or compulsive sexual behavior or out of control sexual behavior. Nobody says, hey, it's a two-part problem. There's two diagnoses. 
one diagnosis is compulsive sexual behavior or sex addiction or out of control sexuality or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and one other diagnosis is there's an abuse disorder and you can go to the DSM and articulate and find a diagnosis that says spouse or partner abuse, psychological, and you can diagnose that. There's also a diagnosis in the DSM that gives you a place to specify any other disruptive impulse control and conduct disorder, and you can identify the integrity abuse disorder that way. So, and if you look at this type of abuse with these patterns of gaslighting and chronic lying and deception and manipulation and having a secret life in a family system, that meets criteria for some kind of legitimate conduct disorder that should be named because there's such an obvious disregard for others patterns of manipulation and deception, a legitimate lack of integrity and regard for other human beings and their rights and their feelings and an apparent lack of remorse or guilt or conscience around having a secret sexual life. So all of these criteria meet standard definitions of sociopathy or antisocial traits or characteristics narcissism there's a lot of different problems with those dynamics that we already identify as conduct disorder of some type so what i keep reinforcing is you know we got to get out of the idea of just looking at compulsive sexual behavior or sex addiction as just a sexual problem it's actually a whole other thing as well often which is it's an abuse disorder there's a conduct pathology there which i think again and i do think from my experience with partners over and over and over again i see that that piece is more painful more destructive and um, more traumatic than the dealing with the sexual behavior because I mean, nobody wants to be to be betrayed. Obviously, it's it's going to be a traumatic, awful experience. But I do think that people have a lot of capacity for getting past that and the forgiveness. What I see partners struggling with the most is the empathy and the validation and the recognition of all of those chronic patterns of lying and deception and manipulation that accompanied the the secret sexual life. Exactly. Yeah. But you were asking, you know, where is the field and where are clinicians? And that hasn't really been developed yet. Pretty confident that as the field continues, this will all come online naturally, right? But right now, I think where the field is at is just identifying that partners have trauma symptoms. And I think it's important to recognize and to be honest about the fact that um, it can be confusing to clients who are exposed to this model, whether it's through you, Omar, or coming to see me or Dwayne or come to one of our workshops. And 
you know, to be, again, to be exposed to it, to understand it, to, to have it resonate on some level, and then to go back to one's own therapist and be on a different page. And I'm, I, I think it's a much bigger topic and we, you know, don't have a lot of time to talk about that here, but I do want to acknowledge that because I think that that is causing some problems for the partners that, and, and addicts that are hearing this and are exposed to it. Yeah. If there was more acknowledgement of these patterns of abuse in treatment, that would help everybody because, of course, victims need help and the abusers need help. And right. so if this isn't part of treatment and not being diagnosed even or not even being named as abuse even, then that just shows how far behind the field is at understanding and even recognizing or seeing or naming this type of abuse. And we do have programs, clinical intervention for physical abusers, right? There's batters programs or sexual offenders. We have treatment, clinical treatment intervention called sex offending treatment, right? Sex offender treatment programs. We have programs who perpetrate driving under the influence even and DUI programs. We have programs who, for mothers who are seriously abusing drugs and we provide clinical treatment and help them for issues related to child abuse. This kind of abuse is not yet named. And, you know, I hope that we move to a day where we can say this kind of abuse, we have a name for it. And uh, the diagnosis would be something like an integrity abuse disorder. And the characteristics of it would be something like the list I read. Mm -hmm. And then we could provide treatment both for the people who are abusing this way and also for the people who've been shaped and harmed by these patterns. Yes. Definitely. I think beginning to give it a name makes it visible, makes it seen, makes it concrete. Yes. It's the first step is the naming of it. Right now it's sitting in the dark. It's, there's no spotlight on it yet even. And if there's no spotlight on it and you can't see it, then you can't even name it. Right. And we're not even, we're not even a place where there's light on it yet. Well, and I I really appreciate you for coming forward and, you know, introducing this model and standing by it and, you know, and teaching it. Because for me, I feel like it's such a crucial piece. And when I teach about it and when I, when I talk about it with the, the addicts and the partners that I see, it resonates. They, it's, it's an aha, like light bulb moment. And I think it is so, so important. And so, um, yeah, thank you. I'm really grateful to have this as a working concept. Yeah, once you see it uh, and see it clearly, it's shocking that it's in the dark and nobody else sees it. It's a very weird space. And from that space, uh, you know, for years I've been saying, it seems like I'm walking around seeing all these mostly women hemorrhaging and everyone's just walking by them. And it's like, I'm the only one who can see that they're hemorrhaging. And everyone's just kind of walking by and it's so common and it's everywhere. And I'm like, what's going on? So. The good news is once you study it and slow down and see it and start naming it and pull it out of the shadows, it can really make sense and you can really start getting it. And then it's really obvious and you can really sort of like, wow, how could I have, this is a huge giant and a huge elephant, right? This is a huge elephant that I wasn't seeing. And now that I see it, it's like, okay, it's so apparent the elephant's here and it's huge. 
right? I think we could do a whole podcast episode about why it, it doesn't want to be seen, so to speak. You know, I think in seeing this abuse, it speaks to a bigger social and cultural issue that uh, needs to be addressed. Did you know that even many, many domestic abuse or intimate partner abuse programs or lists, if you look at lists on the website even, will not have this kind of abuse on it? Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. And yet it's such a common and really devastating with severe trauma symptoms type of domestic abuse. Right. Well, and that's why partners, I think, respond so strongly to this because this is, they're finally, after, you know, in many cases, years being heard and recognized. Exactly. And that makes perfect sense. Like if your abuse is in the dark and not even treatment has a name for it yet, and you're hemorrhaging, yeah. Right. If somebody's naming it, that's going to mean a lot to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would imagine for the partners out there who are left on their own to be suffering without a name, it would be so, so difficult and so incredibly painful. Well, it's going to exacerbate and add to the trauma. Right. And the devastating symptoms, right? Being in so much pain and hemorrhaging, and then, then there's no help. There's you know, something interesting that I, I want to share is sometime sharing this information about the um, integrity abuse disorder with partners, and they're really resonating with it and so grateful to hear it. I also then see them become very frightened about how their husband will react to it. They will say things like this will, he'll, he'll just, you know, he'll freak out. This will send, he'll be so angry. He's, you know, I, I think we can say this, things like that. You know, so there's even the buy-in on some level by a partner sometimes that their husband or partner can't, can't deal with that or it would be too shaming for them. Exactly. And then you can also pick up that they've already so afraid of his reactions. Right. So Omar, we're, we're sort of running out of time. And we, you know, when we asked you to come on, we had talked about our interest in discussing gender pathology in the, the context of betrayal. And we had all agreed that there was sort of, you know, some really important information that had to be, or some, some foundation that had to be laid in order to get there. So I'm wondering if there are some other sort of big pieces that you feel you want to introduce now, and then we will follow up this podcast with the discussion of gender pathology. Yeah. So there's two things here. One topic that I think deserves some time is what is a DCSR, a deceptive compartmentalized sexual or relational reality. And that actually is part of defining and understanding integrity abuse disorder. Because the minute you have a DCSR, you have a IAD, integrity abuse disorder. You're already abusing someone the minute you have a secret sexual basement underneath your house. So I'd love to talk about that. I'd love to talk about that acronym and how that fits into our understanding of integrity and abuse disorder. So that metaphor and that acronym, I think, are really important. And then, Dwayne, you really hit it on the head when you talked about our culture and society and why this type of abuse is so hard to see and uh, put a spotlight on. There's actually a huge discussion around gender and masculinity that explains some of that and why 
there's there's a reason for that blind spot. There's a reason why it's so hard to name that particular type of abuse, even as we're naming all sorts of other types of abuse. So that would be also at the tie-in to the gender pathology, Marnie. And I think that too would be a great topic for us to discuss. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. And it's a honor to be with you guys and share this with your clients and patients and audience. It sounds like we're going to have a few more episodes with you, Omar, to be able to talk about this in, in more detail. And I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom about this and and talking about it and bringing it to the light. Yeah, and, and being, in my opinion, brave, because again, it's, you know, this yeah. field is is still evolving and there's still a lot of controversy. And I, I feel like at times it, it seems like there's different camps out there. And I truly appreciate you speaking with such just, you know, you're very direct, you're very candid and you speak your truth unapologetically. And it's something that I, I really admire and, and I thank you. You're welcome. All right. Thanks, Omar. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, where your healing is the number one priority. If you'd like additional resources about betrayal trauma or to learn more about the workshop, please visit helpingcouplesheal.com. If you're finding the podcast helpful, please support Dwayne and Marnie in continuing to reach others impacted by betrayal trauma. If you are finding the podcast helpful, please support Marnie and Dwayne in continuing to reach others impacted by betrayal trauma by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast with someone you care about. Once again, thank you for listening. We're grateful for your trust and look forward to continuing to support you on your journey of healing.